Disciples Church is a church plant in Canyon, Texas. We are a church without walls that is focused on evangelism and discipleship. We believe that we are saved by Jesus, changed by Jesus, and are on mission with Jesus. Join us as we make disciples verse by verse. Okay, please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning. And when you find that, please stand. We're going to stand to honor the reading of God's word. All right, everybody there? My kiddos, my kiddos, I want you to take notes as well. Have something to think through. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Then they, say they, that's going to be the Sanhedrin, right? That's going to be the ones that just questioned him. They, the Sanhedrin, sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him. Say trap. To trap him in what? In his words. They're going to trap him in his words. And when they came, they, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks. Nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Say truthfully. <laughs> Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought him a coin. Whose image and inscription is on this? He asked them. Caesar's. Say Caesar's. Caesar's. This is very, very important. Caesar's. They replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were what? They were utterly amazed. This is God's word. You can be seated. So verse 17 Verse 17 may be the most famous political statement ever announced by Jesus. Everybody knows it, right? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God's. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he said this. This statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instance it was uttered, but even today it's universally acclaimed as the single most influential political statement ever made in history. Okay, Phil Riken, and in his commentary, he said, The answer Jesus gave is the most, is the most important and influential statement that anyone has ever made on the subject of religion and politics. Phil Riken's amazing, by the way. If you've never studied any kind of Phil Riken's uh, commentaries, they're unbelievable. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. So with just a few words, Jesus answers a question that's posed to him by his enemies. You saw that. He's going to avoid a trap that's set by the Pharisees and the Herodians. And then he's going to leave everybody in verse 17 what? Amazed. Utterly amazed. Okay, so this morning, like we have as a church the unique privilege of coming together as the body of Christ and trying to figure out why they're utterly astonished. What was so important about verse 17 that left them all utterly astonished? What are we to do with this text? There's something for us to follow. Okay, the Lord is about to teach you through Mark chapter 12 the importance of having an extreme allegiance to him first and foremost. And then he's going to teach us our role as it relates to government and politics. This is very, very important. And if you're going to understand this statement and precisely apply it, then you need to understand its context. So write down these two words. The context is built around conflict and controversy. 
you need to first understand the context in which the story is given. In Mark's timeline, this all takes place in the final week of Jesus's life. On Monday, he entered Jerusalem and entered the temple in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Do you remember that? He entered the temple and he overturned the tables and cleaned out the, the corrupt money changers and declared to the religious leaders that they had made his house a house of prayer into what? A den of thieves. And then in verse 18, Mark informed us that the chief priests and the scribes were so mad about this that they were going to, from that point forward, be seeking a way to what? To kill him, to trap him, to kill him. They were, they were going to seek from that point forward a, a way to kill him. And then Jesus is going to return on Tuesday in, in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And the religious leaders are very, very upset in chapter 11, verse 27. The religious leaders are still upset from what happened the previous day when he challenged their authority. And so they come to him and they ask him a question. What's the question? By what authority? Do you remember that? By what authority are you doing these things? And if you remember what happened, Jesus silenced them by asking a question. And if you remember, that was a question they refused to answer. Do you remember that? He kept them silent. And then he takes it straight to their face with another punch, right? He gives them the parable of the vineyard. Do you remember the parable of the vineyard? Right? He describes to them how they, as the religious leaders, are the wicked tenants who have been stealing, right? They've been taking things that didn't belong to them. And so he would, God would send representatives back to the, uh, the, the, the ones who are renting the vineyard, right? They're the tenants, and they're not going to give God what belongs to God. Instead, they're going to do what? They're going to hurt the servants. They're going to kill the servants. And then finally, the owner of the vineyard is going to send who? His son. And what are they going to do with the son? They're going to kill him. And why do they want to kill him? Because they want what belongs to God for their own. This is very, very important. And so in chapter 12, verse 9, Jesus informs the religious leaders that because of their choices and what they're going to do to the son, the owner of the vineyard is going to come back and he's going to destroy the tenants and he's going to give the vineyard to others. And then in chapter 12, verse 12, we read together as a church that the religious leaders perceived this, that he was talking about them. And from that point forward, they did what? They were coming to arrest him. Okay. So we have a plot to kill him. We have a plot to arrest him. We have confrontation. We have conflict. You need to understand the, the, the context of where, the, where this is happening. The conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders is getting worse, right? Worse down somewhere. You need to understand we're escalating still. Do you understand? It's getting much and much worse. He's going into the temple, and he's upsetting everything. See, like if you were in Jerusalem in the Passover week for this year, you would want to be there to see this. You would want front row, t you know, front row, you know, seats to see the conflict that's happening. And, and, and luckily for us, Mark is going to take us to the temple and let us watch what's about to happen. Jesus knows. Jesus absolutely knows. He's already predicted it four times in the Gospel of Mark that he's about to be killed. Jesus knows what's coming. Do you understand? We're in Wednesday and he knows his death is how many days away? He knows what's coming. The skin is about to be ripped from his back, right? His beard is about to be ripped from his face. He's about to have a crown of thorns pierced on his head, right? And they're going to string him up on a cross and let him suffer for three hours before he's finally going to die, right? He knows what's coming. The religious leaders are aggressive and relentless in their opposition to him, and they are intent on killing him and arresting him. 
since he has entered the temple, I want you to see and feel what he's been, what he's been going through. He enters the temple, and from the moment he walks in, he's been surrounded by a pack of wolves, right? People who want to eat him, to snap at him, to kill him. Like, like he's not, this is not a friendly atmosphere. Do you understand? And then it gets really interesting in verse 13 of chapter 12, because we have a very unlikely union between the Pharisees and the Herodians. This is crucial if you're going to understand the text. They're going to approach him with an evil intent. So we're informed in verse 13, look at verse 13, that they, who is they? The Sanhedrin. From our previous text, we understand that. It is the Sanhedrin, and they are coming to him, right? And and so they're going to send representatives, they're going to send Pharisees and Herodians to trap him. How do you think they're going to do? Not very good, not very good. So they're going to come to him, and they're going to try to trap him. Well, I'm going to say good luck. So the conflict started in chapter 11, verse 27. We need to understand the context a little bit farther, right? If we back up just a few verses, we see that the conflict started in chapter 11, verse 27. The Sanhedrin lost the fight. Jesus silenced him. And so they reconvene and they send another attack to Jesus to trap him. These people are absolutely relentless. And so they send this unlikely pairing of Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to trap him. So listen, what you need to understand is the context is really filled with aggression, with opposition, with conflict. They want to hurt him, they want to kill him, and they will go to any means. And you need to understand why. Every day that Jesus is left breathing, he takes one more step in exposing their corruption. Do you understand that? Every story, every encounter, every parable, every miracle, everything he does in the temple after Monday exposes one more layer of corruption. And so they need to silence him as quick as they can. So, it's, so we know it's relentless. We know they're opposed. We know they want to kill him. But what I want you to see now is the attack is also diverse. You need to understand the Pharisees and the Herodians. So let me give you a little bit of background on this alliance. Where do you think this alliance actually first formed? Who's been studying the, the Gospel of Mark? I hope you have. If you're studying this week, then your, your studies would have drove you back to chapter 3, verse 6. Right? You remember after Jesus healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath? Do you remember that story? Immediately, the Pharisees concluded that he violated the fourth commandment. He worked on the Sabbath. And then Mark notes for us that the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him on how they might arrest him or destroy him or kill him. So at least from chapter 3, verse 6, there's been this unlikely pairing of Herodians and Pharisees with the intent to hurt Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians, this is what you need to understand, they're actually enemies. They're adversaries. They don't get along. They don't agree, right? They, they, are, they are diverse on all matters of religious and political matters. They are intensely and very much against each other. The Pharisees were anti-Roman. Okay, you need to write that above Pharisees. They're anti-Roman. They don't like Rome. Okay, they're anti-Rome. But the Herodians are Roman sympathizers and supporters. The Herodians love them. They want them there. They belong there. That's what they think. You have two politically and religiously opposed groups of people. You see, the Herodians supported Herod Antipas, who, was previ- who has previously arrested John the Baptist, and had him what? Beheaded. They took his head off his shoulders, if you remember that story. right? The whole purpose of the Herodian gathering is to support the political influence of the Herodian family. That's why they're called, that's why called Herod, right? Like you, you should start seeing those pieces go together. So one group of people represents opposition to Rome, And the other one represents all things for Rome or love for Rome. This is a strange, strange alliance. You should see how desperate they are. Okay, how desperate are these as the Sanhedrin to stop Jesus? 
Listen, what was a religious threat to the Pharisees is also a political threat to the Herodians. It's both. So we see this convenient uniting of, of religious leaders and political leaders to support one wicked purpose. Look at verse 13. They. They sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to what? To trap him in his words. They want to trap him in his words. They approach him with a trap in mind. They want to incriminate him. They, they want to get him to say something with his mouth. Do you understand? They're going to trap him with his words. Because, because if he messes up, he will either suffer at the hands of the public group of the gathering or he'll suffer at the hands of the Roman government. They have set a trap for him. They approach him. They approach him with a trap in mind. Look at verse 14. They approach our Lord with words that are dripping in flattery. Okay, like I, I read verse 14 and instantly my skin started to crawl. I was just irritated by it when I first read it. When they came to him, they said, Teacher, teacher, we know that you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks. Notice the flattery in that. Do they really think that about him? Ugh, it's like it makes you like you, you would just have to know that is sarcastic, right? It's flattery. They're trying to butter him up. Like if you, if you were there in the original scene, I'm sure everybody who was listening was just annoyed, like annoyed by the way they were speaking to Jesus, right? So, but these words come with a, a, a very sincere question. Look at the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Their words are flattering, but their question is sincere. But ironically, ironically, their assessment of Jesus is accurate. I hope you see what's coming. Like, oh, it's so good. They speak more true about Jesus than they realize because he does not care what men think about him, and he will speak truthfully about God no matter what. It's so ironic. They describe him perfectly in chapter, or in verse 14. He having prepared, right, having prepared this trap with words of flattery, they set out with a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not? Now, that's a legitimate question. That's a legitimate question given the situation, but it's a very dangerous question, okay? And it's a fatal question, right? Because if he answers this question wrong, the Herodians are going to take his head from his shoulders. They did it with John the Baptist, they'll do it with him. It's a very dangerous situation. It's a very legitimate question, though. This is a tax. This is a standard tax. It's, a very, it's the most unpopular tax, by the way. It was a basic tax that was imposed by Rome on every Jew, this is what you need to know about this tax, if it's going to make sense to you. This tax was imposed by Rome on every Jew. It was a price that the Jews had to pay for the privilege of living under Roman rule. Okay? The Jews, listen, the Jews despised, um, like, absolutely despised this tax, not only because it's an economic hardship, right? How many of us hate paying taxes? Wouldn't it be great to take your entire paycheck home? Right? So, it, it'd be great. It'd be... <laughs> so, so you'd be real happy about it, right? You had to take your entire check home. And so not only, though, is it causing economic hardship, but they actually despise the tax for another reason. It's a symbol that their pagan god has beat their god. Okay, it's more. It's so much more than, you, than we understand. It's a symbol that their false god has domination over them. See, on one side of the coin, there's an image of the emperor, right, with a very offensive description about him. It calls him divine. The, the inscription on the coin actually says he's divine. He has divinity. He is God. The Romans believed that Caesar was God. And the coin that was used to pay this tax was idolatrous to them. It made their skin crawl in every way. It would be humiliating. This, this would be like the Muslims attacking America, 
right? Changing our entire dollar system and stamping Muhammad on it and saying he's the one true God and then making us pay our taxes with that money, right? And to show our submissiveness to, the, to, the, to their God. Do you understand? It would have been very offensive. It would have been very under your skin all the time. Every time you had to hand that money over to them, you'd have immediately been offended by it. So Israel, listen, listen, like the Israelites are paying the Roman Empire for the privilege of living in their own land that was given to them by God. Romans came in and slaughtered their people and now make them pay with their money to still live there. You understand? It's very, very offensive. So is it appropriate, they asked Jesus, is it appropriate for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Do you understand the heartbreak in that question? It's a legitimate question. It's legitimate. Like, should we, should we have to pay, pay Caesar taxes? Who, this guy who thinks he's God after he slaughtered our people? Like, so how is the Lord going to answer this question? Jesus, like, is, is it God's will for the chosen people of God to pay taxes to a false God? Is that, is that God's will? Jesus, are, are you really saying that the people of God must pay a pagan ruler to rule over us who thinks he's God? Yes or no? Answer the question, Jesus. Do you see the, the tempo in the text that it's kind of building? They don't they only leave them two possibilities, right? Yes or no. Is it lawful for us to pay ta- for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So listen, if, if Jesus supports paying the tax, this is what's going to happen. If he supports paying the tax, immediately the entire crowd that's gathered around him, they will hate him. Do you understand? If he says, yes, it's lawful for you to pay your taxes, immediately he loses the popularity of the people. Therefore, he's in a lot of danger. Do you understand? They will kill him for this, Okay. Right, and then not only that, but they, the the people think that when the Messiah comes, his only intent is to come and, and and remove Roman rule. Do you understand? They think the Messiah is coming as a military leader to remove the opposition of the Roman government. That's what they think is supposed to happen. So if he says yes, pay taxes, he loses the people. And if he opposes the tax, right, and or sorry, if he opposes the tax and he says no, you shouldn't pay the tax, then he'll be called upon for insurrection. Right? And the Roman government will come after him. They do not tolerate insurrection in the Roman Empire. They will string him up to die. Do you understand? He's in a trap. His enemies have set the trap. His enemies must be thinking we've got him. Can you see him? Like, can you see, can you see the, these Herodians and these Pharisees just snickering? Like, just waiting for him to answer. Do you see? It's like a pack of wolves who are ready to eat our Lord. Right? They are hungry, and they think they've got him. So depending on how he answers... Jesus will either lose his popularity with the people or he'll lose his head. Do you understand? Like, it's very, very dangerous. Is it lawful, Jesus, to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus, are you loyal to God or are you loyal to Rome? Which one? Pick one. You can't have both, right? It was a carefully crafted question designed to trap him in his words from verse 13. They already knew the trap that that was being set. It was designed... It was designed by the Sanhedrin and then the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together over how many chapters? Nine chapters of plotting and planning against him to trap him in one moment so they could take his life. And the question is presented as only having two possible outcomes. Yes or no. Can you, can you imagine these guys feeling like they just scored the game-winning touchdown with only three seconds left? Can you imagine that feeling? Like, they have been plotting for nine chapters, so I would guess at least two years. <laughs> All right, if you're starting in chapter three and you're working through the Gospel of Mark, they've been planning a long time to pull this off, right? 
And now they've they've done hit the, they've made the touchdown. There's no time left for Jesus to respond. He must respond, and he will die. Can you imagine? the snickering, the feeling, like the evil, like everything that's bound up in this one question. But then I want you to see the authority and the wisdom of Jesus on full display as he answers their question. Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, I, I'm, not, I'm not guessing it takes supernatural discernment to understand that their intent was evil, right? I'm, I'm guessing he already saw that. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Can you feel the holy grief in that? What has he done wrong? Nothing. Why are you testing me? So he says, bring me a denarius. The question was not sincere, but we need an answer now to this question. Will he publicly oppose the Herodians and support, um, and support or be supportive of the tax? Which one will it be? It appears that if you're really understanding the heartbreak of verse 15, it appears that Jesus is grieved. Like it really appears like his heart has settled and he is like, why are we even going here? Like, why are you testing me? And so he says, bring me a denarius. The denarius was the coin that was used by the Roman government to pay the tax. Okay, Jesus didn't need the coin to make the point. I hope you see that. He could have just described it, but he didn't. He said, bring me a coin probably to increase the drama and the, and, the, and the attention of the crowd, right? He's at a crowd gathered around him. So like, what's the purpose and what's the intent of bringing the coin? It appears that he's doing it for some kind of dramatic effect. He wants to give them a real tangible something to look at, right? He wants to give them something to behold. So he says, bring me a coin. I hope you see what's coming because Jesus is going to set a trap for them. The reversal is about to happen. He responds to their question with a question. Right? He, he responds to their question with a question. And if you were in chapter 11, verse 27, immediately this group of people should have said, uh-oh, like we've messed up. Do you understand? Like this is a pattern of Jesus. Like he asks questions when they ask questions and it leaves them speechless. So look at verse 16 as he flips the tables. They brought him a coin, perhaps because he didn't have one. Have you thought about that for a minute? It's, it's a kind of an interesting thought. Like, our Savior not having any, any money. Anyway, so perhaps they, so they bring him a coin. He could have pulled one out of his pocket if he had money, but I, I assume he doesn't have any money. So they bring him a coin, and he asks the question, whose image and inscription is on this? And how do they respond? Okay. And so he does, ironically, the exactly same thing he did in verses 11 through 27, right? 11, 26, chapter 11, verse 27. And then he's going to live up to their expectation from verse 14. Look again at verse 14. We know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks. You do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. He's about to show them what that really, really looks like. Unlike the religious leaders, Jesus doesn't refuse to answer the question. Notice they could have, you know, anyway, he doesn't refuse. And he's not reluctant or evasive. Verse 17, according to Phil Riken, is the most important political statement ever made. Look at verse 17. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are. So Jesus responds to their either-or question, right? Is it, is it lawful to pay? Yes or no? With a both and. Okay, if you're a student of English, you should really be pay paying attention to the switch of language. Right? He takes their, their question with only two possible answers and takes it to a both and question or both and um, answer. This 
the moment he said this must have felt like the other team recovered the onside kick and just scored a touchdown. Do you understand? They would have been, their, kin would have, their, their skin would have been crawling from the moment the question came out. To their surprise, right, to their surprise, he, he totally, totally, completely puts on display the wisdom of God. Verse 17, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God. We need to discover, look at verse 17, and they were what? And they were what? They were utterly amazed. Does this sound like the proper response? I don't know. We need to think about this. Why are they utterly amazed? Astonished, shocked, right? Okay. It almost sounds like worship when you look at it. It almost sounds like, okay, let's let's go figure this out. Why are they utterly amazed? What just happened? There's two pronouncements. Two pronouncements. Do you see them both? One is give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God. Okay. We need to figure this out. If this is the most important political statement ever made by Jesus or anybody in the history of the world, we need to figure out why. Jesus commands and commends the paying of taxes. Do you first see that? He first commands and commends the paying of taxes and commands, and by implication, if you're really paying attention to the context, he commands and commends the appropriate submission to Rome. This is a shock. Okay, like anybody who would have been watching this would have thought, wait a minute, the Messiah has come to free the Jews from the oppressive Roman rule. And instead, Jesus affirms the legitimacy of the Roman, the Roman rule. This is sketchy. Like, this is going to get really dangerous for him really quick. For the people who are standing around him, they thought that he had come to free them and to create a new ruling political power. That's what they thought. Do you understand? They thought the Messiah would come, remove Roman rule, and make a Jewish political ruling party that would rule over at least Jerusalem, if not the world. But his purpose for coming is much bigger than that. Instead of calling for an overthrow of the Roman political party, he acknowledges the legitimacy of the Roman government. Do you see it? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay, this is, this is interesting. This has all kinds of implications for us. The Roman Empire, listen, was filled with evil and oppressive things. Do you understand? Do you, do you really know what's going on? Okay, let me give you another outcome, okay? We, have, we, had, we had earlier in the book of Mark, we had a group of zealots. Do you remember those guys? Knife men, right? We had 5,000 soldiers ready to take over Jerusalem with Jesus. And instead of uniting with them and calling for a rebellion, what did he do? He ran from them, right? He hid. He, he escaped from their, he didn't want to have a political war. That was not what he was doing. So this is so interesting. And, and, Instead of calling for a rebellion against the evil Roman Empire, right? Instead of doing that, instead of siding with the zealots, and he has a zealot as one of his own disciples. Who's his zealot disciple? Do you remember? Peter. Peter. So instead of siding with Peter, right, and, and calling for an insurrection, he doesn't support the zealots, and actually he does the opposite. He, you know, he doesn't fulfill the, the popular Jewish expectation that the Messiah would remove the Roman rule. Instead, he says, pay your taxes. This should have everybody scratching their head. The first pronouncement, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, wasn't simply applicable to them or their immediate audience, but it actually has implications for us that go very, very deep that we have to figure out. How does this apply to us as Christians living in, the 20, you know, in 2022 in the United States of America? How does this apply to us? I would first say it calls you to be a good citizen, okay? 
Paul will spend more time um, expounding this in Romans chapter 13. If you want to get ahead of that, you can go study Romans chapter 13. When he wrote, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, um, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul calls that, he describes that in the book of Romans. And if you know the book of Romans, Emperor Nero was slaughtering Christians whenever he wrote that text. And he told Christians, even though Emperor Nero is slaughtering Christians, I want you to be subject to Emperor Nero because he has been put there by God. What? Like, like every Christian would have been upset, right, reading that in the book of Romans. Everybody would have thought, this is, this is wrong on every account. How can we submit to somebody who is ripping our, our brothers and sisters apart in the Colosseum? This makes no sense, Paul, right? But it came from Jesus, the teaching came here in verse 17, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's because the government, governments were made by God and put in place by God. No, no government is in place other than that one that has been put there by God with the purpose of restraining evil and promoting good. That's what governments were given for. Now they change. Sometimes they do really bad and wicked things. What are we to do with that? We'll talk about it in a minute. But this first pronouncement by Jesus is meant to define your life as a follower of Christ. Okay. It's going to guard us from several fallacies. Like It's going to guard us from the false teaching that we can withdraw from government or withdraw from the world. That's the first thing that you need to see. There are plenty of Christian cults, plenty, plenty of Christian cults, who seeing the evil actions of government withdraw from the world and the government to make their own political power. I don't have to quote, I don't have to name those two. You already know who they are. Okay, there's plenty of Christian cults that have done that. Some false teachers, like some false teachers would even say, Right, you can't be truly spiritual if you support a government that promotes evil. Sure looks like Jesus did here. We got some problems. Like, we have a lot of tension that we need to deal with in this one teaching, right? Like, there's, there's a lot of Christian people who would say something like, you cannot support a government whose, whose taxes are being used to fund evil actions. Okay? We got a problem. Do you see what Jesus just said? Okay. We got problems. Jesus has just clearly taught that his followers are to have a role in submitting to the government as established by God. As citizens, like as citizens of the kingdom of God, you're called to be a good citizen of the government that you live under. But we have to be very, very careful. We need some, we need some, we need some other texts. Right? We need some other things to think through. We need to be very, very careful. Here's why. We have faithful Christians that sit on both political parties. Do you understand that in America? We have, we have faithful, God-fearing, God-loving men and women who sit on both Republican and Democrat sides, right? And then we have some who sit on neither side. I would be one of those. I'm not Republican nor Democrat, okay? Like, you need to understand a couple of things. Listen to me very, very carefully. We need to be very, very clear. According to verse 17, we do not have the right to withdraw from government. It even looks like we don't have the right to rebel against government. That's very interesting. Okay, he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but we need to pay very, very close attention. When the commands of the government are contrary to the commands of God, we have a big problem. Big problem. Our ultimate allegiance comes to God, and Jesus is going to make that very clear for us in just three words, and to God. The, those three ver words that come after give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, those three words are the most crucial words of the entire text. That's the climax of the passage. It is the thing that makes all the difference. Allegiance to God is always going to come first, and then, uh, and then when appropriate, to the governing authority above you. Unless the governing authority is calling you to do something that is contrary to the commands of Scripture. 
Okay? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's or, or pay your taxes. Pay your taxes, right? It's violated all the time. That's a simple one. Let's just apply this one for a moment to see where our allegiance really lies. Okay, pay your taxes. That's, that's the command that's given. How many of us struggle with paying our taxes? Mm, many people, let me, I don't like it. No, I mean, we can be honest, all right? But let me, let, me, let me press into you for a moment about the corruption and the evil that's within this one command. Jesus affirmed that it's, that it's right and lawful for us to pay our taxes. It's violated all the time. Many people in America will figure out ways to withhold their obligation to pay their taxes. Sarah worked in a tax office. I've seen it done. Like, there is so many loopholes and ways to figure out how to get out of paying your taxes. Let's be honest, though. Nobody wants to pay their taxes. It sucks, it sucks to work really hard and then to get a third of your paycheck stripped away. Right? That sucks. Okay? Is your allegiance to God? I, I, look, I, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press this a little bit further just because I can. I have seen churches become the institution that helps funnel people's money away from paying taxes. I have seen that campaign go out on email. Like, I've been involved in churches where they, had, they would, on purpose, set up big construction projects that you could donate money toward so you can get a break on your taxes. Weird, right? Interesting. Listen, there's a reason why our church does not have a bank account. There's a reason why our church does not collect tithes and offerings. There's a reason why we don't do any of that. You know why? Because I really want to take serious the words of Christ. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Okay? If you are giving money to a church to get a tax break, are you letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing? If you seek your reward on earth, you're not seeking your reward in heaven. Read Jesus' own words. There's a reason why we don't have a bank account. We don't do any of that. What we do here is if we find out somebody has a need, there'll be a text message that goes out and we'll say, this person has a need. If you can help, please help. Right? You get no tax break for that. Right? We try to do it in secret because I don't want you to lose your reward in heaven. Do you understand? Listen, that's a whole separate point. Okay? Just the implications of it alone. Pay your taxes. Be subject to the governing authorities above you. Right? It's a genuine expression of your worship to God by how you submit to the government. Right? It's a genuine expression um, of how you submit to God by how you love your brothers and sisters by meeting their needs. Okay? It's a genuine expression of love. So is paying your taxes. That's what you need to understand here. Okay? This passage is relevant to all of us. Listen, I just received a Christmas bonus from work. Okay? You know how much they took out of my check? Didn't I? They probably got you too, right? I lost a third of my Christmas bonus to taxes. And, and, and to my sin, right, my sin, instead of being joyful about submitting to the command that Jesus just gave to pay my taxes, I complained about it. And then after I studied this text, immediately I was convicted, and I thought, Dad, it, man, I just missed this one. Like, I had to repent over that and think through that. And so let me give you a couple of things to think through in the upcoming tax season. Okay, let me just give you a couple of ideas to think through. I really did. I felt deep conviction over complaining about losing this because I thought that was my chance to worship God. Do you understand that was my chance. I should have been excited. I should have been joyful. I should have been like, yes, I am doing exactly what God told me to do. I'm paying my taxes. So, so as you uh, approach this coming season, whenever you go to H&R Block or wherever you go to, I just want you to think for a moment as you're getting ready to submit your taxes. Pay your taxes. Don't complain about it. Be joyful. As you're sitting across the table who's, uh, from that lady who's already getting chewed out several times for, not, for you not getting back as much money as you should, right? As you're thinking through all of those things, just be joyful. 
by you paying your taxes, you're actually submitting to God. You're showing love for God. Okay, first, that's first, okay? But that's not all. Not only, not only must you pay your taxes and, and, and you must also give the things to God that are God's. Look at the next section. Give to God the things that are God's. The religious leaders have brought a trap to Jesus about paying taxes, right? They have no question about God. Do you understand that? They have no question. They just have a simple question. Should we pay our taxes or not, right? And instead, the master teacher of, of answering their question the way they want him to, he seizes the moment as a chance to really expose the deep level of corruption and give them a chance to repent once again. His grace is filled through this passage. Suddenly, in verse 17, in the middle of verse 17, everything changes. The conversation takes a whole nother point. Here's the point. Paying your taxes isn't a big deal. You are really in debt to God. That's the main point. This is where he's going. I hope you see this. The religious leaders didn't ask anything about God. The climax of the passage happens and pivots on three words, and to God. Phil Riken, I hope you get Phil Riken's commentary and read it. That's so good. In his commentary, he said the most important thing about Jesus, this is the most important thing that he said about anything, is what Phil Riken said. I, just, I read that line over and over and over. I'm like, man, he really thinks this. He keeps on talking about it in his commentary. Like, this is the most important thing that Jesus has ever said about anything. Okay? So behold, like, just, just for a moment, like, like, behold the superior wisdom of Jesus as he makes this statement. First, he makes a clear distinction between Caesar and God, which is three words. Do you see that? He has Caesar, give to Caesar what's his, and to God. He makes a distinction. There's a difference between Caesar and God, and this is the key to understanding the entire passage. William Lane, another commentator, said this, by distinguishing so sharply between Caesar and God, he is protesting against the idolatrous claims of Caesar advanced on the coins. Okay, very, very important. So this is all intentional. It's all deliberate. Jesus, listen, Caesar's face is imprinted on what? But you, but you are made in the very image of who? God. On the coin, there's a picture of Caesar, and on you, there's a picture of God. You, my friends, are actually made in the very image of God. Caesar's face is imprinted on the coin. Fine, give him what's his. Fine, Jesus says, right? You want the money? Give him the money. That's not a big deal. But on you, on your very soul, on your very life, the image of God has been stamped on you. Do you understand how important this is? Everything you have, everything you are, everything you will be, every area and aspect of your life has been stamped by the image of God. Sinclair Ferguson said this, Jesus says, I see another coin, but a different image. I see you men. I, I see the image of God stamped on your lives. And so I conclude that you must give to God what belongs to him. Your whole lives. The whole of your lives. Jesus suddenly takes the trap that's set by the Pharisees and the Herodians and flips it over and says, you owe God everything. Have you given him everything? Have you given him everything? Listen, Jesus has established that it is sinful, very sinful to withhold paying your taxes from the state. He's made that very clear. But how much more sinful is it for you to withhold yourself from God? That's what he just did. 
So let me, let me tell you, like the Pharisees, the Herodians, they didn't see this coming. I didn't see it coming when I first read it. They went in with flattering words to trap him, and instead, and all of a sudden, he brings to light the fact that they owe God everything. What a magnificent teaching moment. He brings a physical coin before them to say, look at this. This belongs to Caesar. And then he has people standing all around him. He says, look at you. You belong to God. So what would you expect? Uh-huh, right. You, you would expect like the, 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 the Herodians and the Pharisees in a moment of time to step back and say, you're absolutely right, Jesus. We owe everything to God. We should be giving him everything, right? We, we would expect that to happen, but that's not what happened. Look at what happened at the end of verse 17, and they were what? They were utterly amazed. They were utterly amazed. They were astonished, right? They were, they were amazed at him. Listen, so, so if you tie the context together, the, 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 the Sanhedrin has just learned that they're the wicked tenants who are going to kill the son, right? Because they want what belongs to him. They want what belongs to God. They're jealous over what he has. He gives them a chance to repent. He says, no, you need to give to God the things that are God's. And what belongs to God? We do. Everything we have belongs to God. Paying your taxes is trivial when you compare it to your life. How much you owe God. So listen, instead of trying to trap him, like instead of trying to trap him, they should have actually fallen to their knees and given their life over to God. Do you understand? God in the flesh was standing in their presence. And they knew it. Like, instead of giving God the things that belongs to God, their life, instead of doing that, they just stood there and they marveled. Here's my fear. Here's my fear for you. Okay? I'm afraid that you could listen to a sermon, you could read verse 17, and you could have the same effect, that you could be utterly amazed, like, astounded, like, just, like, blown away by what Jesus just said. But what I'm afraid of is you still won't give God what's God's. That scares me. Do you understand? Like they, 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 they respond with worship, right? They respond being amazed. That's what it looks like is worship. They're amazed at him. But they don't repent and they don't give God what actually belongs to God. Now, we can be in a lot of danger. Okay, we can be in a lot of danger. Like a lot of danger. Like we can be just like them. We can have things in our life that we want to give over. Like we want to give over our Sunday mornings. We've kind of committed to that as a group, right? Like, we are more than happy to give over our Sunday mornings to come together and gather and study the Word of God. But I would ask you, what do you do the rest of the week? Right? Have you given it all to Him? Like, really? I mean, like, I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Like, what does your week look like? Like, we got to think through a couple of things. We can be just like this group of people. We can give God just a piece of who we are and not all of us. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, Paul said this, For from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Every single thing comes from God. Yeah, Romans eleven thirty six. Everything comes from God. It all belongs to him. Our bodies belong to him. Our eyes belong to him. Our ears belong to him. Our hands belong to him. Our time belongs to him. Our affections, right? Our love, our, our, our worship, it all belongs to him. We belong to him. And so as Christians, like we, we actually can fulfill this verse when we start to understand that worship is not about singing a song. Okay, it's more than that. We don't sing here for that very reason because we've made it a, a sh- we've short-selled like what, what worshiping really is. It's not singing a song. Giving your life over to God through worship is how you treat your wife or your husband Monday through Saturday, and it's how you treat your kids right? It's, it's about giving all of who you are over to the glory of God and being the best person you can be, 
right? Like it's totally different. It's about who you are at work. Do you understand? Giving your life over to God is about how you are and, and how you treat people at work. And what's even more crazy about this, like it's not about God owns us because of creation. He actually owns us because of redemption, right? He had inherently owned us because of creation, but then in redemption, whenever Christ bled on the tree and died for us, he then has bought us. Do you understand? Like, like we owe him everything. There's nothing he can't ask of you. And so we need to ask ourselves several questions if we're not going to be like them. How can you give all of you to him? In the home, like in the workplace, at school, at church, uh, in sports, whatever you do, like, like it all belongs to him. It's all important to him. He's not calling you to withdraw. See, a lot of Christians do that, right? They want to withdraw from society and, 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 and make their entire life, uh, uh, you know, like a, like a, nah, we won't go there. Um, but, but what he's actually doing, he's putting two things together. You pay your taxes and you honor God. You do both. Okay, you go into the world and the way you treat people in the world, you honor God. Like, like all of your life is meant to have meaning and, and worship within it. Like there's, there's, so, there, there's so many people who will come to church on Sunday morning, sing some songs and worship, and then go to work and be a terrible human being. Okay, that is not okay. Okay, Paul describes it this way. He says, whatever you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Every single thing you do, the way you talk to your mom, honors God or dishonors God. The way you talk to your spouse, honors God or dishonors God. The way you treat your coworkers, the way you drive in traffic. Every single thing that you do, every time you take a drink, Paul says it honors God or dishonors God. Right, you can have an outstanding, and I will, an outstanding bourbon, and I will be honoring God by the way I drink that bourbon, praising him for his gifts. I will do that, right? It's all, it's so different. Whenever you gather this week with your family to have Christmas dinner, the way that you prepare that dinner, the way you set the table, the way that you love your family and the way you treat your family will either honor God or dishonor God. Do you understand giving God what's God's is so much more than you think? It is not about reading your Bible and praying and coming to church on Sunday morning, okay? You can worship God in a lot of ways and you can withhold from God in a lot of ways. So I want you to write this down, okay? I want you to enter the week with this question. What do I need to give to God that's God's? Simple. I want you to think through that question all the time this week as you apply it to your life. Like when you go home later this afternoon, I need you to ask the question, like what am I withholding from God at home? Like is there things that I'm not doing at home that would be dishonoring to God? Right? What am I withholding? What am I not doing? What am I not giving to God? Right? Like as, as a child, like, like, like it's like, we need to think through that, right? Like we need to think through like, what am I doing? What am I withholding from my parents? Is it love and affection? Like, is it like, what is it? What am I withholding that I should be giving over to my parents to, to, that would be honoring to God? Right? Or, or what about this week when you go to work? I want you to think through this, this question. Like, am I complaining at work? Like, am I complaining and just being grumpy and a bad employee? Is that giving God what's God's? No, it's not. Like, it's not. Examine your life. Because I think we are more than just a group of people who want to be utterly amazed. I think we're a group of people who want to love God. And so in order for us to do that, I just want you to, to come back next week. I'm going to ask you. This is why I want you to write it down. I'm going to ask you, what did you discover? In what area of your life were you withholding from God? Is it your time? Is it your affections? Is it your, your home life? Is it your work life? I want you to think through that, and we're going to wrestle through that. We're not gathering next week, but when we do come back together, maybe we'll do it on New Year's Eve. We'll gather as we're hanging out and having a good time, and we'll talk about that. What did you discover? What did you, what did you find out about your life?
Okay? That's the question I want you to wrestle with. What? What are you withholding from God? What do you need to give over to God? How do you need to worship Him? Okay? Thank you for listening to this message. If you would like to know more about Jesus, the gospel, discipleship, or Disciples Church, you can contact me at ChristopherHogue at Yahoo.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-H-O-G-U-E at Yahoo.com. Church, we have been sent into the world to make disciples. Let's go make disciples.